Westminster Confession asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And even if you're not familiar with the Westminster, you generally will be familiar with the answer, and that is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Worship is our highest duty as Christians. And ultimately, the psalm uh, that we're going to be in tonight, Psalm 134, really has at its aim uh, the right worship of God. It is the final psalm of the songs of ascent about worship. And we've uh, discussed at length how the the progression of these psalms moved from a distant land closer and closer to Jerusalem and then inside the city gates and then gazing on the presence of the Lord in all of His majesty. But here tonight in Psalm 134, we find this joyful exhortation for uh, the people of God to continue in their worship. And Psalm 134 is not only a psalm that ends the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, but it also functions as a gateway into the last 15 psalms. I can't believe that we're that close. Um, I really can't. And it has been a joy to this point, and I'm looking forward to the, the next 15. But the, 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 the final 15 really have as their emphasis this encouragement of a call to worship God. So the, the Psalms of Ascent really are positioned to call the people of God to lift their gaze to the Lord. Look to the Lord in all of your difficulty, in all of the struggles of life in this world. Lift your head and gaze upon the living God. And the last 15 tell us then as we gaze upon Him what it is that we are to do. And that is to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So with that in mind, let's stand tonight and read the second shortest psalm in all of the Psalter. Psalm 134. A writer here writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. This is God's Word to us this evening, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence tonight and we acknowledge that these brief words escape us when we don't meditate on them rightly and when we don't consider them fully. So we pray that You would open our blinded eyes and illuminate their understanding in our hearts and might You apply the truth that they are conveying to all of our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. So the first question I think that we ask when we come to this particular psalm is, who is this written to? And it may appear that this is just generic and it's being written to uh, everyone uh, at large. But there's actually a particular group that is being spoken of, uh, spoken to here when... The psalmist says, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And that group are the priests or the Levites. Um, and, and there's this emphasis here for the people of God 
uh, to worship, but then there's this idea, remember, the Psalms of Ascent are this idea of the people of God going up to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship God. And what I think we have here in Psalm 134, as short as it is, is the people of God have finally gotten the benediction, the yes and amen of the Word of God, and now they're getting ready to go home. They're going to journey a long ways. And remember, this is pre-Uber uh, and uh, all of the rest of transportation. They're not just going to hop in the car. It, it may be months, a year before they see the house of the Lord again. It may be longer. And so as they leave the house of the Lord where the Lord is dwelling, they, they turn back to the Levites, to the priests, to those who are in charge of keeping the place of worship, and they remind them, continue to praise His name. Know that the right worship of God is, even in our absence, our uh, heart. It's our concern. The duty of the Levites is explained, and we're not going to go into this at length tonight. Um, but it's explained in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 9, chapter 23, chapter 25, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, we see in 1 Chronicles um, chapter 9, verse 33, this idea that the Levites were in charge of the temple worship, specifically responsible for the work night and day, that it was unending, the worship and the praise of God. And so that it is their responsibility to carry out this, uh, this task. And, and part of what we have to see here, again, is this idea that God is calling people to worship Him not sporadically, but continually. That there should be not just this idea that, well, Sunday, I, when I was in college, I had a friend uh, whose father-in-law would, he was, he was a godly man in, in many ways, uh, but he owned a, a co-op, and he was a country guy. And if you mentioned anything biblical or spiritual around him, his response would be, boy, church is church, and work is work. Uh, what we do on Sunday is for Sunday, and the rest of the week is for work and doing life. But part of what the psalmist is explaining to us here is there is no division. That we really should be praising God and worshiping Him Continually, And in the life of Israel, this was in a very real, uh, practical sense. Um, the, the reality, if we were to look throughout church history, is that worship has been eclipsed at different times throughout church history. There have been times where the entertainment of men has become more important than the praise of of Almighty God in the house of the Lord. And here's, the reality, here's what I think uh, happens. We think that that's a problem only in our day. Friends, that's a, a problem in every generation. That we don't become dulled into thinking that the right worship of God is ultimately a bunch of people getting together and saying, I like that worship music. I like the way that this particular sound makes me feel. It's not worship at all. In fact, we need to be, I think, be reminded even that worship for the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 
took place in a dungeon. It's not about our comfort and our ease and everything happening the way that we think that it should. It's about praising God for who He actually is. So we have to ask this question, why is, why is there so little wise, thankful, and thoughtful worship in our particular day and age? Why is it that, that, that not only today, but throughout church history, we find the church steeped in man-centered foolish worship? And I'm going to give you a few reasons. We'll plow through these quickly. One, because often we are trivial people. We live in a world that doesn't want to think uh, deeply about anything. Uh, We live in a world that the second that you go beyond a bumper sticker label of of anything, someone's going to gloss over and go, you've lost me, this is boring. Uh, We we think too lightly about things. Uh, We live in a day and age where not only do we not want to think about things too deeply, but we don't want to have heroes. I talked Sunday morning uh, about the reality of this uh, book that I read, the Oh, the Treasures You Will Know. And, and I was so pumped about this thought, this statement that the author writes, and, and he talks about all of the, the reformers, and he talks about Bunyan and all of these different uh, heroes of the faith that I think many Christians who are even older inside the Christian community today don't know because we've moved away from what is thoughtful and surrendered to what God has been doing to just being trivial. And part of the the thought in mentioning all of these people is this. We have a, 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 a mindset that says, Well, I don't care about all of those people. I just want to love Jesus. But the reality is, all of those heroes of the faith, where are they? They're in Christ. They are born-again believers, and they are part of what God has gifted to you and I. Friend, if you're here tonight and you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, do yourself a favor and read it. And you don't have to read it quickly. Uh, Do it slowly. Or there's... now. If you will not read the book, there are audio tapes you could listen to or even uh, videos. But we have such a rich heritage. Sorry. At the end of the day, what we find when the church is doing well is that she is a contemplative, deep-thinking church. Not trivial. And, And we live in a day and age where if you proclaim the truth in any depth, there's going to be a whole group of people that will say, well, that doesn't, just, that doesn't feel good. Well, it's not about that. It's not about just our feelings. Feelings are trite and trivial far too often. Now, I don't think that it's less than God giving us joy in who He is, but we should seek to be weighty in who we are in our thoughts about God and in our worship. The second reason that I think worship is trivial is that we are self-centered. I don't think I have to illustrate this at all tonight. We live in a day and age that is self-absorbed to the extent that gender is an arguable thing to many people. Uh, We live in a day and age where worship is not so much about... a. Do you know on Sunday morning... There is, do you know how many consumers there are of worship? 
When we gather in here on Sunday morning, how many consumers of worship are there? One. And it's God. No one gets to come in here and say, that worship was really good or bad. Ultimately, God will be the judge because He is the one who receives our worship. Now, it's right to say, I, I, I've been encouraged by the worship this morning, or I really sense the Spirit at, at, at work in our uh, worshiping God and ascribing to Him the glory that He is due. But we have this entire idea uh, in the church today, and it's not even close to, to a, a minority. It is the vast majority of the church that believes the consumer of worship sets in a pew. Friends, that's idolatry. That's absolutely antithetical to anything that you will find in Scripture. The only right consumer of worship is God Himself. A.W. Tozer, 50 years ago, more than that now, probably 70 years ago, wrote this, Thanks to our splendid Bible societies and other effective agencies, for the dissemination of the Word, there are today many millions of people who would hold right opinions probably more than ever before in the history of the church. Yet I wonder if there has ever been a time when the true spiritual worship has been at a lower ebb. To great sections of the church, the art of worship has been lost entirely. And in its place has come the strange and foreign thing called the program. The word has been bar borrowed uh, from the stage and then applied with sad wisdom to the type of public service which now passes for worship among us. Here's my fear. That there are many people inside the church that have become so accustomed to an idolatrous, man-centered worship that when they walk into church, they don't even know anything's wrong. They don't even know that they've slipped into man-centeredness. But I can promise you this. When we slip into man-centeredness, we begin to lack genuine joy in the Lord. We begin to struggle under the weight. Friends, we make horrible objects of worship. And we ultimately undo ourselves in the process. R. Kent Hughes um, when he pastored in uh, College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, said this. He said, The unspoken but increasingly common assumption of today's Christendom is that worship is primarily for us to meet our needs. Such worship services are entertainment-focused and the worshipers are uncommitted spectators who are silently grading the performance. From this perspective, preaching becomes, becomes a homiletics, that is a preaching, of consensus, preaching to felt needs. Man's conscious agenda instead, uh, man's consensus, excuse me, consensus agenda instead of God's. Such preaching is always topical, never textual. Biblical information is minimized. The sermons are short. 
May God be praised forever. I don't think I'll be accused of that. And full of stories. Anything and everything that is suspected of making the marginal attendee uncomfortable is removed from the service, taken to the nth degree. This philosophy instills a tragic self-centeredness. That is, everything is judged by how it affects man. This terribly corrupts everyone's theology. It also corrupts our worship. When we come in here and we want to feel good, we have missed the boat entirely. Our worship may have its outworking in our feeling joyful, but what is most important in our worship is that God is magnified for who He is. And that is the third problem that we have in the church today, and, and that is this. We are oblivious to who God actually is. Uh, we live in a day and age where tragically Christians deny basic doctrines that the Bible clearly proclaims, but they don't deny everything outright. What has happened in our day and age is that people may or may not ebb into heresy. Often they don't, but they just take out constituent components of biblical orthodoxy that the church has held for two millennia. And in the process, do you know what they do? They become meaningless in the culture. We lose our ability to be salt and light because we don't stand on truth. And ultimately, we lack clarity about who God actually is. We live in a day and age where there is this weightlessness of the person and the work of God. We, we like to think of God in ways where He would never confront us and the thoughts about Him would never cause us to tremble. But do you know, every passage of Scripture, when, when, when man, fallen man comes into close contact with a holy God, what happens to the individual who are having those experiences is there is this gravitas, this weight, this reality that woe is me, I am undone, God is holy, and I am not. We live in a day and age where we want to think lightly of God. I, I have in my office, uh, above my reading desk, there are uh, there's probably more now because we've added things. But when I started, there were two things. One is a framed picture of Hugh Latimer and Ridley being burned at the stake. Uh, and you'll remember that uh, Latimer's the guy that looked at Ridley as he was being burned alive at the stake. And he said, play the part of the man, Mr. Ridley, for we will this day in England light a candle which will never burn out. And then Latimer died quickly and Ridley had to burn for hours. Um, so that's one encouragement. The other one is a, is a Time Magazine article. I think it's from 1950. And the bolded question on the front of Time Magazine, 1950, 72 years ago, is, uh, is God dead? 
And the entire thrust of the article that's contained in that magazine is this. It's a horrible, accurate, prophetic uh, writing. And I don't mean prophetic in the biblical sense. Uh, the, the, The author is really pointing at this reality that the churches will continue to be perpetuated in the future, but what will really come to the forefront is what the author calls a functional atheism. That is, we will come to church, we'll give tithes, we'll sing songs, but we really won't believe in the bowels of our soul that there is a God to whom we are accountable to. And friends, we're there. We're there. Because if you go into at most uh, mainline churches today, the question isn't, preacher, what do the oracles of God declare about who God is? The question is, preacher, how good can you make me feel this Sunday? And then in light of that, we fall into nominal worship. We fall into idolatry. So here's my proposition for you tonight. If we are to heed these words in Psalm 134, and remember, they are first and primarily written to the leaders Uh, spiritually speaking, in the nation of Israel. If we're to heed these words and to worship God rightly, one thing has to be a reality, and that is we have to know God for who He is. And if we are going to know God for who He is, that means we don't know God according to how we feel. We know God according to how He has revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture. Our feelings are all over the place. But God's Word endures forever. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We're going to have to be people who not only on Sunday morning, but every day of the week, get into the Word. And some people will say, Jay, I'm just not great at reading. That's okay. No one's coming behind you to, to, to grade you on how well you can pronounce all of the genealogies. May God be praised forever. We're going to have to turn the TV off and not let American Idol and all of these other distractions rule our homes, we're going to have to allow the Word of God to permeate every area of our lives. We're also going to have to be people who hold our Gospel ministers responsible for the words that they preach from the pulpit. God help us when we get to a point where we want to gain the applause of men from the pulpit. Where we want the approval of people instead of the affirmation that God is at work revealing Himself in our generation through His Word. At the end of the day, this is the reality. How will God ever be rightly praised unless we know who He has revealed Himself to be. And so how does this functionally, practically work out? Several things, and I'll be done tonight. One, pastors must lead in prayer. Look at verse 2. It is like the precious... I'm sorry. uh, Lift up your hands to the holy place 
and bless the Lord. The idea of lifting up of hands in a biblical sense was a posture in the uh, Old Testament sense of prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. I want people to have a, a posture, a position of prayer. And specifically in Psalm 134, that the the, the leaders of the church are being encouraged in that direction. Now, I, here is, I don't want you to hear, well, that's only for the pastors. If you are here tonight and you have a sphere of influence, fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, be people of prayer. But it does start, I believe, first and primarily in the church with the men who lead the church being men who are fervently on their knees begging for the blessing of God upon the people of God that they would know God and rightly worship God. And this is a problem that I think is it's vanishing in our contemporary culture. Instead of being serious in our prayer, we just want to be we, we want to be efficient in prayer. Don't pray too long, preacher. Don't give too much time to that. Don't bore us with nonsense and details. Just get up there and do this quickly. Friends, we rightly ought to come before the throne of grace and spend time there. It is our joy that Christ has opened the throne room of God to us through His blood. And so we should continually be people who strive in prayer to take the needs of the saints and our burden for the lost before the Lord asking that He would work in our generation. When we fail to rightly pray... We fail to genuinely worship. Secondly, pastors must lead in teaching the Bible. The reading and the teaching of the Bible was one of the Levites' chief duties. Now, Psalm 134 doesn't list this out explicitly, but anyone who would come in the context of the Old Testament to Psalm 134, knowing that Psalm 134 is written to the Levites, would have understood well that what is part and parcel to their job is not to make sure that I feel great on Sunday morning. It is that they would know the true meaning of the Word of God and that they would make it clear. In fact, that's what we find Nehemiah doing. In Nehemiah, he brings Ezra. And you'll remember in Nehemiah chapter 8, all of the people, the Bible records, listened attentively to the book of the law. To the first five books, those are the books that most of us, if we have a reading plan, we go, Leviticus, really? Do I have to? Deuteronomy? That's, I have to confess, I was at a counseling conference one time, and the speaker, he, uh, he said, okay guys, uh, let's get in groups, and what we're going to do is I'm going to spit out a passage from Leviticus, and then I want you to make application in your groups about how you would counsel in a modern, modern setting from that particular passage. And I thought, oh, well, this will be fun. Uh, and what, I, what, what happened was, because I, I, we've, I, I've grown up around the church in our generation that thinks that books like Leviticus are so boring. 
If you have a podcast on your phone, go look up Albert Moeller's class line by line on Leviticus and listen to his teaching on Leviticus. It is anything but boring. And in that particular setting, uh, I, I just remember being mesmerized at all of the different applications that these gospel ministers and counselors came up with from the text to help um, repentant sinners. I, I just thought it was fantastic. And, and that's what we see here. that The Levites would open the books of the law and they would read them. And the people would lift their hands in prayer and say, Amen and Amen. And then they would bow their faces on the ground. The Levites would instruct, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And the text says they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving it meaning so that the people could understand what was being said. That's the responsibility of your pastor elders. But sadly, there are many so-called preachers that have walked away from giving clear exposition of the Word of God. And I promise you this, when we don't clearly understand who God is from His Word, we will not worship Him rightly. Because what we will be doing is this. We will be conceiving out of our own mind who God is. And that conception, apart from the revealed uh, person of God in the pages of Scripture, is an idol of our own sinful flesh. And what we will do on Sunday morning is we will idolize our own thoughts instead of praising the One who has redeemed us by His blood. I hope that you can sense my passion in that. Because I think far too often, maybe you've never struggled with that. But in tears, I've had to come to the reality that far too often in my young adult life, that's exactly what I've done. We need to understand God's Word because we need to worship Him rightly. A minister's pastors are to pray. They are to expound the Word of God. They are also responsible to oversee the music. Many churches today, what is more important to many is that we merely have a, a good sound. That we have a modern contemporary beat. And I'm not pushing against all of those things necessarily, but I want you to understand this. What matters more than if we can all keep on key is, and I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever heard me sing, you honestly know that that's the truth. What matters more than that is that what we sing is theologically accurate and that it clearly communicates who the living God is and what He has done. We are just making noise if we feel good and sound good. Our worship should rightly proclaim who the living God is, what He has accomplished, and what He has yet to do. So the content of the songs should be the concern of the elders. Also, pastors must, and I think this is of utmost importance, reverence God. Pastors must make clear in every aspect and I, if there's one thing that I could ask you to pray for me in, it's this. I, guys, I was raised in a culture where to be a pastor meant 
that you needed to be this great communicator with excellent stories that would get everyone to laugh and that you would make people feel good and that you wouldn't offend anybody. And I would say that I spent the large majority of my time in preparing for full-time vocational ministry in college under a kind of a humanistic, man-centered type of teaching that lacked a genuine reverence for God. And I have to continually grow into that. And I'm sure Braxton could share his own testimony in that regard. And so the, the reason I say all of this is, is that pastors must be men who, when you're around them, you realize there is a gravitas to them in their thoughts about God. It's not just a light joke and flippancy and being casual all the time. There is a real sense about men who are genuinely called of God that one day they will stand before the people of God and give an account to God about the things that they said and the way that they led, desiring to make plain the text because they wanted God to be known in their assembly. And so if there's anything that you can pray for me in, it's... Pray that God would humble me and continually, continually renew me to be a man who loves the Lord and who reverences Him in everything that I do. I think that when we look at Leviticus, one of the things that we see there is a modeling of what that means. And some people would say, are you saying that we should go back to the Levitical Old Testament system? No, but I am saying this, that in the Old Testament we see a reverence for God. We see a reality that the people of God understood that if they didn't worship according to what God had revealed in His Word, they expected the judgment of God. In our generation, we expect that we can show up any time that we please and worship any God that we want, and God should still love us and bless us. That's not the case, friends. We need more reverence for God. And some people, I think, do this too, and it drives me nuts. They convince older people who are, who are concerned about the next generation rightly uh, of, of young people becoming believers. And so what they will sell you is this. It, you need to be cool and hip and modern and relevant, and there'll be a bunch of words you'll never find in the Bible, but they'll keep heaping them on you. And, and what they will eventually tell you in all of this is that you don't really need to worry about being so accurate about the Word of God and reverencing God to reach your children. You just need to, to make God someone that they can be okay with. What they've done in that is they've created an idol for their grandchildren and their children that, that will not save in the final analysis. And the right thing to do is to dismiss all of that and to continue pressing on. If you want your grandchildren and your children to really know who God is, then grow in being a person who reverences God for who He actually is. Okay. Pastors should be people who pray. They should be people who expound the Word of God, make it plain. They should be people who oversee the music and who reverence God. So the question is this, what happens when that is the case? Does God promise that we will see exponential growth overnight? No. Does God promise that we will all have feelings that are delightful and ordered all at once? No. God does promise in the long run that we will be blessed people if we live lives 
in those kinds of ministries. In verse 3, May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. The, the exclamation here is to praise the Lord. And then the, 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 the psalmist says that the, the, the leaders, the Levites, the, the pastors in Israel are to continually to be people who worship. And if that is the case, then all of the people of the earth will be blessed because they will in that moment rightly worship. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight thankful that in your mercy and in your kindness to people who only deserved your wrath, your judgment, hell, that you've revealed yourself through the pages of Scripture, that you've spoken to your prophets and to the apostles, that you've sent throughout church history men to make plain the meaning of the text in such a way that we don't and shouldn't have to argue through a whole lot. Because who you are and the most important parts of Scripture are so evident and so clear. And yet the church today is running after many idols. Father God, would you use this congregation in such a way that you would open our eyes, that we would be people of the book, and that we would worship rightly. Might we see many people leave this place and go into places of ministry where right teaching and preaching will come to pass, that people will genuinely worship and reverence You and give You glory that You are rightfully due. Father, would You use our lives in that direction? In Jesus' name.